And now, deep thoughts. You are listening to the Deep Thoughts Podcast, where we explore one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and in this episode, I am talking about the body with my guest, Nancy Piercy. She is the author of many books, including The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and the two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live, that she wrote with Chuck Colson, and her book, Total Truth. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's a former agnostic. Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She's even been to Abbotsford. Uh, She was highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today and was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And what troubles me is I wasn't even nominated, you know, for preeminent evangelical Protestant male intellectual, which is troubling. I have the Deep Thoughts podcast after all. Anyways, her latest book is the subject of our conversation today, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She is the definition of a deep thinker who is full of deep thoughts. So this is going to be great. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Piercy. Thanks for this conversation today. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. And I want to say thanks as well because um, a couple years ago, our pastoral team at our church uh, worked our way through total truth together. And it really was illuminating and revolutionary for us in a number of ways. So thank you for that great book. Well, that's great to hear. I'm glad that you're working through books like that. <laughs> that's a good sign when a church is working through books on Christian worldview. I don't think that's very common. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, because really, I feel like to have a conversation with you is to have a conversation about worldview. So, so just to help our listeners out, would you mind telling uh, them what a, what a worldview is? And then specifically, how would you define a Christian or biblical worldview? Right. Uh, sometimes people think it sounds sort of esoteric, like some kind of intellectual thing. And so I like to start by just saying it merely means that you have a Christian perspective on all aspects of your life. And the people who first came up with the concept of worldview were specifically trying to overcome the sacred-secular split. And that's a term most of us have heard. But what it means is some, it's, we're very prone to thinking that religion or Christianity in, in particular applies only to the spiritual life. You know, it's what you do on Sunday. It's how you get saved and you know you're going to heaven. Um, and maybe it applies to some of your moral choices. But many of us don't really have a clear sense of what it means to have a Christian perspective on, say, education or politics or um, entertainment, art and literature. We don't really have a notion of Christianity being a guide to our understanding of all of these different areas. And so that's really what a Christian worldview means. It means we see the biblical... Uh, that we see that the Bible gives us a framework for our thinking about all of life. That's really helpful. And in your writing, you, you, you speak quite a bit about, about your own story of faith, of coming to faith. And so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about some of your early years of faith formation, because I think they really tie into this whole Christian worldview conversation. 
Oh, certainly. I don't think I would have been a Christian if I hadn't encountered a Christian worldview. Um, I, I grew up in a Lutheran home. Um, my parents were Scandinavian, and uh, it's you know it's the state church in in Scandinavia. So it was a kind of a cultural Christianity more than a real personal committed Christianity. And in high school, about midway through high school, I, I started having questions about my religious upbringing. I, I just, really, all I was asking is, how do we know it's true, right? I'm going to public high school. I'm, I'm, you know, all my, all my books are secular. All my professors are secular. I should say all my teachers were secular. Um, and I just started asking, how can we as Christians be sure that what we believe is true over against everyone else? And the sad thing was I could not really get any good answers. Um, I spoke to a Christian college professor. I uh, thought I would get an, a thoughtful answer from somebody so well-educated. And all he said was, uh, I, well, I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? And all he said was, works for me. Wow. <laughs> and I said, that's it? Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's not working for me. <laughs> yeah. And I even had a chance to talk to a seminary dean and I thought, I'll get something more substantial from him. But all he said was, uh, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Oh. As if it was a psychological phase and I would just outgrow it. Right. And when that was the level of the responses that I was getting, I finally decided maybe Christianity just didn't have any answers. And it seemed to me a matter of intellectual honesty so I probably wouldn't have used those, those terms when I was 15. <laughs> but it seemed to me as a matter of intellectual honesty that you, uh, if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't say you believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. So I very intentionally set my Christian upbringing aside and decided it was up to me <laughs> to figure out what was true, mm. <laughs> which is a pretty big task for a high school kid. <laughs> But I literally started walking down the hallway to the um, library at the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I figured, well, isn't philosophy where people are supposed to ask questions like this? Like, you know, if, if Christianity is not true, then what else is out there? What are the other options? Uh, what is truth? How do we know what's true? Uh, is, is there meaning and purpose to life? Is there a foundation for ethics, or is it just, you know, true for you, true for me? So I started asking all of these questions, and um, none of my friends were asking these questions at that time. <laughs> I, was, I would buttonhole my friends in the, and say, well, what do you think is the meaning of life? <laughs> and they would uh, say, uh, well, you know, there's a party this Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Um, so I, I I started reading philosophy books not out of any sort of uh, intellectual interest, but because I was desperately searching for answers. And so it was a few years later, um, I was in Europe. Uh, we had lived in Europe when I was a child, so I always wanted to go back. And when I graduated from high school, I did. And I uh, happened to have some friends who were stopping by Libris, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which is in Switzerland. And they said, hey, come down and see us. We're here for a weekend at this place. <laughs> and uh, so I went to Libri to visit with my friends. Um, 
people sometimes ask me, if you were not a Christian, why would you go to a Christian place? And as well, because I didn't go there to go to a Christian place. Mm. Um, I went to see some friends of mine, and, and that was really what it was about. But when I got there, it was very clear that from the questions I was asking that I was not a Christian. Um, because by that time, I had become pretty settled in an agnostic point of view. I had decided that um, if there was no God, there clearly was no meaning or purpose to life. We were just on a rock flying through space. If there was no God, there was no objective foundation for ethics. Cultures just make up their own rules. And if there was no God, there was no foundation even for knowledge. Because if all, all I really have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and history, then how, you know, how could I think that I could have some kind of objective or universal truth? Ridiculous. It seemed to me obviously ridiculous that anyone could have objective truth. So when I arrived at Labrie, I was pretty settled in the secular views. So it it, it took a while. Um, I have to tell you, it took a year and a half <laughs> um, before I converted. I, in fact, I stayed at Labrie for only a, a month the first time I was there. Uh, and the reason I did is because it, it precisely because it was so attractive. Here was the first it was the first time I had ever encountered Christians who could deal with the intellectual questions I was asking, who could deal with questions of relativism and skepticism and uh, and determinism. By that time, I had decided that we were all biochemical machines anyway, products of evolution, and so there was no free will. So I had all of these questions by that time, and. I had never found a Christian who could engage, and these guys could. The, the, Dr. Shaver and um, the staff at Labrie, they weren't put off by those questions at all. They'd heard it all before, and they, um, and they also, of course, as you know, Francis Schaefer was very, he was known as somebody who um, saw the importance for Christians of being engaged with the arts, yes. and I was studying violin at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. So, you know, the fact that he cared about the arts and could show that as a Christian you should have an aesthetic sense, that was very impressive. And uh, and I have to say, this was 1971, and everyone there was a hippie. <laughs> and, and at that time, the hippies were the cool kids. Um I identified with uh, the hippie movement at the time. And, 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 and there's a serious point here, though. At that time, there were no Christians successfully reaching across the cultural divide to these disaffected young, young people. And so that was quite impressive. I thought, who are these Christians who can talk to hippies? You know, that, I was just so amazed at the people I met at Labrie that I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally. You know, because it was so appealing. Mm. And I didn't want to do that. You know, Christianity had let me down once before. And so I was not going to make this step unless I was absolutely intellectually, intellectually convinced that it was true. So I left Libri, but through Libri I discovered there was such a thing as apologetics. And so I continued reading apologetics. That's when I discovered C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and others. I think even Oz Guinness had written his first book by that time. Um, so I eventually decided I was convinced that it was true, but I was not attending a church or anything. 
So I thought, okay, I, you know, I had a, con- a genuine conversion experience. And then I thought, where do I find other Christians? Well, I knew some back at Labrie. <laughs> so a year and a half later, I went back to Labrie and stayed for four months. And that's where I really got grounded in my understanding of Christian worldview and apologetics. And that's why it's permeated all my writing and speaking and everything since then, is because, you know, I have such a heart for young people like me who are having those questions and, you know, not, you know, being in churches that don't address it. You know, I want to help churches learn how to address the questions that young people have today. There's so many young people, um, you know, they're so immersed in social media and so on that they they often they, they often have a very strong sacred secular split. They have um, a young man wrote a, wrote an article not long ago where he said uh, he read Total Truth, the book that you mentioned earlier. Um, he read Total Truth, and it helped him to realize I had my church self, where I said all the right Christian stuff, and then I had my real self. Uh, going to public schools and so on, my, my, what I thought of as my real self that was completely secular. And he said, I didn't even realize how split I was, how divided my life was until I read Total Truth. And he said, that's, that's the book that, you know, that helped me become more integrated and, and, and see that Christianity is meant to apply across the board and that it's not tenable to have a split mindset. Hmm. So that's, we're back to what, you know, so what is a Christian worldview? It's not having that split mindset. Yes. And uh, just hearing that from your story, Dr. Piercy, I just want to affirm you, uh, you are having that kind of impact on so many young people today, asking these deep questions about the faith and that, that your resources are available to them. We've given out a couple of your different books to young people in our church who are so hungry for for deep truth. And so you, you are a gift to a, a lot of young, uh, young people in the faith today. And you don't shy away from uh, really important and really kind of hot button issues in, in your latest book, Love Thy Body. So, so for our listeners, would you mind just telling them what's, what's the book about and what are these hot topics that you are addressing in it? Right. So Love Thy Body, my most recent book, covers the really cutting-edge moral issues of our day, such as abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. And the reason I decided to cover those is that today many people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? Hmm. So my goal in Love Thy Body is to give people the tools to debunk those negative stereotypes that are so common and to help them to make an um, a case for Christianity that shows that the biblical ethic is actually based on a higher view of the human being and a more positive view of the human body than the secular than the secular ethic. Yeah, so so you touch on it there. Christians are often seen as yes, out of touch at best or or dangerous bigots at worst. But in your book, you you, you actually you have this way of flipping that on its head a bit. Um, what is it about our society's narrative that is actually is actually the dehumanizing worldview? You know, maybe we should start with the most obvious one. You know, the ex- the example of transgenderism, because you know that's the that's the hot button issue today. That's the headline issue today, and it also shows it the most clearly. 
So in transgenderism, people are essentially saying, uh, the you know, transgender activists are arguing ex- explicitly that your gender, your sense of self, has nothing to do with your biological sex. So it's a very dehumanizing view in the sense that it's saying who you are biologically, your body has no, in, has no uh, importance, it's insignificant, it's irrelevant. Um, it's, uh, the transgender agenda is alienating people from their own body. There was a BBC documentary that says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body, at war. So there's this internal conflict going on. And, of course, in that war, it's the mind that wins, right? The mind, the mind that your inner feelings, your sense of self is all that counts. Your body doesn't count at all. So kids down to kindergarten today are being told that their body tells them nothing about who they are. It's not part of their authentic self. And so our response to that should be, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? After I wrote Love Thy Body, I actually read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11. She claimed her identity as a boy, and then reverted, detransitioned back to girl. And she said, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, when I, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. I thought, wow, that would have been a great quote for a book called Love Thy Body. Yeah. But what it means, this was on a, very, on a very secular liberal website, by the way, and it means even secular people are starting to see that transgenderism rests on what they're calling body hatred. You'll see that language now even in secular writings. Trans, transgenderism involves body hatred. People who are so disassociated from their body that they no longer even take their identity in any way from their biological sex. And so here's an example where you know, Christians have been seen as people who don't have a high view of the body or this world, you know, that we're, we think only the spirit counts. Well, actually, no. We say God made the material world, God made our bodies, and we're the ones today who are actually affirming the dignity and value of the human body over against the secular world. Yeah, to, to, to actually uh, see what the scriptures say about the importance of the body is actually to discover that Christianity is the earthiest of, of the faiths in the sense that Jesus came in the flesh. Like, you know, at the time of this recording, we're in the Advent season, Christmas is coming upon us, and it's that time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Jesus lived fully God, fully man. He died on a cross. But then he doesn't do away with his body. He actually um, rises from the tomb in a resurrection body as sort of the first fruits of what's to come for everyone who believes in him. Do you, do you feel like there is, is a corrective that needs to happen in the church in our understanding of, uh, of the Bible on this idea of the body? Yes, indeed. Although you've almost covered everything I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because you're right. I, I, I find that I have, when I speak to public groups, uh, excuse me, when I speak to Christian groups, I find that this is one of the things I have to help them work through, is that because many 
many Christians do have the idea still that, um, well, here's how one of my students put it. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. Wow. And the, the problem with that is that many Christians have lost touch with our own heritage. You know, the early church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism did, though for very different reasons. The early church was facing philosophies like Gnosticism and Platonism and Manichaeism. You know, Augustine was a Manichae. And all of these isms treated this world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction and spoke about the body as the prison house of the soul. And their view of salvation was escape from the body. Uh, Gnosticism even taught that this world was created by a low-level deity, an evil god. Um, After all, no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty, mucking about with matter. So in this, this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary, because for starters, it taught that the material world was created by a supreme deity, not some low-level evil god, but by a good god. And therefore, it is intrinsically good. And the fall does not completely um, obliterate that. Its it's intrinsic goodness still shines through. And then, of course, what you just said, the uh, incarnation. At the time, by the way, that was the greatest scandal uh, for for the Gnostics and others at the time. the, The very idea that the supreme deity would enter into this material world, uh, the the, the um, incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And uh, as Paul says, the very idea was, uh, was foolishness to the Greeks. And, and his, of course, and then, as you already said, the resurrection was in a body. And then um, at the end of time, God's not going to scrap the material world. I think many people got, get the impression from their churches that the ultimate goal is to go to heaven and be a, you know, in a purely spiritual state, um, but that's not the goal. The goal is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, and the Apostles' Creed from the beginning has affirmed the resurrection of the body. You and I will get our bodies back, too, just as, as Jesus did. We have to help Christians, for, for starters, um, get, get a um, profound appreciation that Christianity teaches in a very high, an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. And I sometimes get pushback on, on this. Um, there, was, there was even a Christian philosopher who wrote a review of my book, Love Thy Body, and he said, no, 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 she's mistaken on this. Materialist, you know, the secular materialist who thinks matter is all that exists, have a higher view of matter than we do. And my response to that is, wait a minute, the materialist says we're just on a rock flying through space with no meaning or purpose, that there is no higher purpose than the physical world itself, that the physical world came about by random, material, blind, purposeless, mindless forces. That's not a higher view of matter. That's a lower view of matter Mm. because it's saying that matter was not intended. Matter has no intrinsic meaning or purpose. The Christian view is saying God made it, God loves the the world, God made it for a purpose. You know, just because you think matter is all that exists does not mean you have a higher view of matter. It's still a much lower view of matter. 
I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think that's that this, what you're touching on, well, actually unpacking so well in your book is such an important corrective uh, for us in the church um, to hear uh, in this moment. So you talked about transgenderism and you actually, you're making this reference to the idea that 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 uh, worldview, the worldview that's pushing that is, is actually estranging people from their bodies. Um, how might you how might you talk about that when it comes to um, euthanasia? Uh, my mom my mom has been a um, a palliative care nurse for for a couple decades now, and I had mm. a, I had a, a podcast conversation with her as well about uh, medical assistance in dying. We call it here, um, which was which is a really wonderful conversation to hear from her perspective, where palliative care is meant to be very humanizing, actually bring a lot of dignity to people as they have their final days. Um, you say euthanasia is driven by the same dehumanizing worldview. How so? Well, let me start, if I may, let me start with abortion, because that lays out the logic, and euthanasia is a similar logic. So, um, on abortion... What many people don't realize that if you read the professional bioethicist today, they all agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from science, from genetics and DNA, is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that and support abortion? Well, what they're really saying then is being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection. That the fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, which is usually defined in terms of mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. So notice the implication here. What they're saying is the fetus is human from the moment of conception, but it becomes a person sometime later. Well, the implication is as long as the the fetus is merely human, biologically human, it's really seen as just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's exactly how they describe it in medical journals, by the way. They call it medical waste. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. Hmm. And this is actually called personhood theory. And notice what it's saying, that being a human being is, you know, you're basically a disposable piece of matter. And once you accept that in terms of abortion, well, notice uh, you, you used the word dehumanizing a minute ago. Notice how dehumanizing that is. It's essentially saying that being a human being gives you no moral status and does not warrant any legal protection. You know, you have to become a person. You have to develop certain mental abilities before you qualify for legal rights. Euthanasia is just the opposite. It's the same dehumanizing worldview, but in reverse. It's driven also by personhood theory. It says if you're mentally disabled, if you lose a certain level of cortical functioning, then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously, obviously you're still human. You know, you haven't become an alien species or whatever. But if you lose those mental abilities, many bioethicists say 
you are only a body. That's a phrase one I got from one of one professional bioethicist says you're only a body, and at that point you can be unplugged. Your treatment can be withheld. Your food and water can be discontinued, and your organs harvested. So you see again, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And um, I was once. A, I was once appear, I'm invited to appear on an NPR program in San Francisco, and uh, then, then the, they, they did a pre-interview where they asked me about my views on things like abortion and euthanasia, and I said, well, the secular view is exclusive because it says some people don't measure up. They don't, they don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the status of personhood. I said, it's the pro-life position that's inclusive, because if you're a member of, the, member of the human race, you're in. Hmm. You count. Wow. Every human is a person. Um, and you're right. The uh, hospice movement was um, driven, was actually invented by a Christian. And the the idea was to say we, we want to we, we want to um, minister to people, uh, deal with suffering of all kinds, not just the physical suffering, but the emotional suffering and the social suffering, in other words, the family relationships and so on. It was originally driven by a, very much a Christian vision, although not everyone today, even, even hospice people, are starting to be in favor of euthanasia, which is really sad. They're, they're, they're losing their original vision. Yes, they are. Absolutely. And so I think somewhat surprisingly, um, to many who would be reading your book, but, but you're, you, you're unpacking it for us so well, you start to link this common thread that, uh, of abortion, like you wanted to start with there, abortion, then euthanasia, but, but you take it further to other moral issues, including homosexuality. How, how do you trace it there? Right. Again, the, what's driving the secular ethic is the devaluation of the body. So when I talk, even when I talk to my homosexual friends, they will agree that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's just how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. But the implication then is that when you embrace a same-sex identity, you are implicitly contradicting that design. You are basically saying, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? And so we have to help people see that's a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Again, uh, you can see how similar it actually is to transgenderism because it's saying, why should I be limited by my body? Why should I take my identity from my body? And I, and I want to tie it into um, what we were talking about before when we said materialism actually has a lower view of the physical world, that Christianity... We have, we have to help people see the Christian ethic is not based on denigrating the body. I think most people think that. No, it's based on the high value and dignity of the body. And let, let me give you um, an example. There is an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. You may know her. Um, she's a fairly well-known public intellectual. 
But listen to the way she defends homosexuality. You know, um, our bodies are part of nature, and so uh, your, your ethic always derives from your view of nature. And if, the, if you think that, the, that nature is a product of, of mindless, purposeless forces, then you will conclude that the body has no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. And if mind is free to use it any way it wants. And so Camille Paglia, she's fairly well known because she's kind of an iconoclastic feminist. She doesn't believe everything feminists say. One of the things she doesn't believe is that uh, sex and gender are just a social construct. She says, no, no, no. Uh, Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But then she asks, and these are her exact words, why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So do you catch the logic? If nature, if matter itself, if the physical world itself is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, then, it, then, then our bodies have no intrinsic purpose. They have no moral message for us. They give no clue to our identity, and we can just do with it as we see fit. And see, the Christian worldview, by contrast, says, wait a minute. No, no, no. Nature exhibits a plan, a design, an order, a purpose. And what we are saying is that if you live in harmony with that purpose, you're going to be happier and healthier. You said um, in your book, secular liberalism, quote, destroys human rights. And I think if somebody were to hear that as a soundbite, anybody today, they would think that is quite a provocative statement. But but here you are, you're, you are making, you're building out this compelling case to say the Christian worldview is actually the inclusive one. That That is so... Uh, enlightening to hear, uh, fascinating and, and, and helpful. Um, Francis Schaeffer, who you talked about earlier, said one of my, it's become one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's an important one. He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners feel the pressure around these topics, right? And don't want to be unloving. And others, in an attempt to communicate truth, might might risk lacking compassion. I'm wondering, you tell quite a few stories in your book. I don't know if any stories come to mind or just a, a word from you here as we, as we close this conversation. How would you speak into um, both your worldview insights here and, and how we might carry those as Christians as ultimately the most loving and most truthful things that we could give others? Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the stories because um, it's important for people to realize that Love Thy Body is not just a book of, of moral arguments. It's got lots and lots of stories and anecdotes, um, especially from my students. Um, but two of my favorite ones are actually um, on, from homosexuality, and um, I tell the story of a young woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for several years. Um, but now is married and married to a man. You have to say that these days. He's married to a man and has two children. 
And the turning point for her, she said, I came, I finally came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. So notice the language. She wasn't driven by shame and guilt. She was driven by the desire to honor her body by living in accord with the, with the, Savior, with the Creator's design. And then uh, I also tell the story of a young man named Sean and, uh, who uh, identified, when he was growing up, identified as gay and was exclusively attracted to other men. And today he is married to a woman and has three children. And his story is a little interesting because he grew up in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So he, he clearly did not think there was anything wrong with it with being homosexual. And why did he change then? He said, I stopped defining my identity by my sexual feelings, and I started regarding my physical body as who I was. And he says, I didn't try to change my feelings directly, which rarely works. He said, my goal is to acknowledge what I already had, which was a male body, and to accept it as a good gift from God. And he said, eventually, my feelings started to follow suit. So instead of defying nature, to use Camille Paglia's word, when she said, why not defy nature, he accepted his embodied existence as fundamentally good. And so what we have to notice um, is the language I use throughout Love Thy Body. You know, honor my body. Acknowledge my body as something that's good. Live in accord with the Creator's design. Live in harmony with my body. Throughout the book, I'm trying to train Christians in this positive language. Because ultimately, this is the question at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes? Or do we live in a cosmos designed by a loving Creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? And helping people both in the church and outside the church recognize that the Christian ethic is based on honoring my body as a good gift from God. And your only appropriate response, therefore, is to honor God with your bodies, right? to, um, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So this is, it takes a while for people to get their mind around it. I know because I've had a lot of public speaking and a lot of teaching in my classes, and Christians Take, it takes them a while to get their minds out of the negative. It's a sin. It's wrong. Don't do it. And there's something wrong with you, right? That's the message that we're known for giving people. Our message needs to be, no, no, we have a higher view of your body. Your body has an intrinsic purpose. God loves you. He made your body. I think C.S. Lewis once said, we shouldn't try to be uh, more spiritual than God and be otherworldly. He said, God, God likes matter. He made it. <laughs> That's a good summary of my book. God, like, God <laughs> likes matter. He made it. That's so good. Uh, and Dr. Piercy, you are a good gift from God to the church. You really are. And, and I thank you so much for your work. And I also thank you for your generosity in, in, in talking to me today. I'm really thankful. So thanks a lot. Thank you for your encouraging words. I do appreciate that. What a perfect way to cap off season two. I want to say thank you to all my guests for sharing some of their deepest of thoughts. 
I want to thank Jordan for producing the show. Most of all, I want to thank you, the listener. Really appreciate you uh, checking out the episodes and, uh, and this thing's been gaining interest, gaining listens, and we're really thankful. We'd love to get this podcast out there even more, so you could help us do that. You could simply click give an honest five-star review and just click the five stars and uh, that gains some popularity and some traction for it. Um, you could also write a quick review about how amazing it is. We'd, we uh, would love that. Um, you could also uh, send along an episode uh, to someone in your life that you think would be helped by a particular episode. That would also be awesome. Plans are in the works for season three. And uh, Emily and I may drop a bonus episode at some point between now and then. So now for my favorite part of the Deep Thoughts podcast, Robin Williams saying, Very deep. Thank you. From your website, I thought you were going to do a lot of sarcasm. And well, on your website, you said something about toning down your sarcasm. Oh, do you remember that? Yes, yes. <laughs> I thought I thought I was going to get a lot of uh. you know <laughs> irony and and humor. <laughs> uh, it's it's the Canadian Canadians are notoriously passive aggressive, so we usually it, it, it usually comes out in snarky comments, and it's the, it, it's not the godliest of behaviors. I, I'm I'm maturing. <laughs>